What does the Bible mean when it says that God is a jealous God? Does paganism ever try to creep into God's house? And when it happened in Ezekiel's day, why did the ancient Israelites think that they could get away with it? You'll find out today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a newbie Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. This is Luke Taylor. I'm a pastor and an optimist. I believe that greater days are ahead, that the best is yet to come, which makes Ezekiel a little difficult for me to teach on sometimes because It's so negative. It's always telling us how things are going to get worse and worse and worse, especially chapter 8, which is where we're going to be today. And let me mention early on, too, this is one of those days where it's really windy where I am. It's really windy behind my church office here, uh, right behind me. And as I've kind of learned, if I I try to schedule my broadcast recordings here around (laughs) the weather, um, I'm not going to have nearly as many days to record as I'd like to. So I'm just going to have to go ahead and record today. You might hear some wind blowing in the background and it's just the it's just the turbulence that goes right along with chapter 8 here. So it kind of ma- it might kind of match the mood of what we're talking about. Um, but first, do pagan philosophies have much of an influence in the USA today? Now most of us would say no, that we live in a westernized country and maybe if anything it's atheistic philosophies that reign supreme that a lot of our threats are more along the realm of secularism, not paganism. And I'm not necessarily going to argue with that. Secularism, that is indeed a threat to us today, maybe our main threat to the church. But paganism, I will say, I think it has a stronger influence than many of us realize. In fact, uh, a few years ago, we attended the Christmas parade that was here in our town. And, And probably like in your town, you know, the parade will feature various floats. They advertise local businesses, organizations, a lot of times churches, and parades, they they are a great place to promote your church in the community. But I remember a couple years ago, uh, there was this group of really bizarrely dressed people, and they came through the parade and they were carrying this banner that said Pagan Pride. That's what it said, Pagan Pride. I was a bit shocked to see that. Uh, In our community, we have a large Christian influence here in our city, and I'd never heard of this Pagan Pride group. Um, You know, to be honest, I'm not sure where they're meeting here in our city. I've never seen them advertised before or even since. And some of these people were just walking normally. Others, they were wearing like antlers and robes. Like I said, they were really bizarrely dressed. And there's this one old guy, he had a beard and he was walking among them. And and this was not Santa Claus, by the way, okay? But I wasn't sure what he was supposed to even be. And then at one point, I noticed that he had like fallen down and laid on the ground. And, And everyone else in the group, they were just like walking on like nothing happened. And then eventually... He got back up, the old guy with the beard, he got back up and rejoined the group, and they just continued walking down the street. And I was really confused. I'm like, what is going on? So I turned to my wife, and I was like, do you know what that was all about? And she said someone had, like, walked up and hit the old guy. But it was, like, staged. It was part of an act. And she thought, like, the old guy with the big beard that he was supposed to represent God, and that this pagan pride group, they were staging a mock killing of God as, like, part of their show. This is part of their thing in the parade. 
<laughs> quite a way to advertise themselves. But I guess they were at least being honest about what their intentions were. And, and that's basically what paganism is. It's trying to get rid of God and replace him with something else. And um, the pagan pride parade posse, they were being pretty upfront, I would say, about their goals. And so I kind of appreciate their lack of subtlety because um, the paganism that we're warned about in the Bible, a lot of times it's a much sneakier. Paganism just tends to creep into the church a little bit at a time. It's more of like a slow drift. You get like the slow drift from the true worship into the religions of the world. And before you know it, your, your own worship center, it can become so influenced by paganism that you can no longer be said to be even worshiping God anymore. And we're going to talk about how that drive happens today as we begin the massive four-chapter vision that starts in Ezekiel 8. This chapter is really significant to the overarching story of Ezekiel, and I would also say it carries a significance to our lives today. There's ideas presented in this chapter that are not really prominent anywhere else in the Bible, and yet they're going to teach us some things about God's great big plan for the world and his big plan for mankind. And so let's get on into it because we're going to have a lot of information to share. I think we'll have to break this up and share some of it like the rest of, of chapter 8. I think we might have to save that for another episode. But grab your Bibles, let's open them up to Ezekiel 8, and we'll start there. So the first verse of the chapter, it kicks off this way. It says, In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Now I'm going to stop right there after verse 1 before I go on. Because I just want to establish the timeline here. This is, this is more than a year after where we last left Ezekiel. He's in his house and it says the elders of Judah are sitting around him. And this is implying that Ezekiel is starting to get some credibility with the people. Like they're starting to gather at his house to listen to him. And a couple things I appreciate about Ezekiel is that this book is in chronological order. So I don't have to do any work to put all this together in my head. Like it's already laid out in the order that things happened. And I appreciate the precise dating system that the book often uses. Like we're in the sixth year of the current king. It says the sixth month, fifth day of the month. The king it's referring to is King Jehoiachin. And scholars and historians, they can trace back and place this date precisely on September 19th in the year 592 B.C., I just find that really cool how precise they can be. One of the neat things about Ezekiel. September 19th, 592 BC. And according to chapters 14 and also chapter 20 of Ezekiel, um, the elders of Judah, they would just occasionally visit Ezekiel and they would ask for like prophetic updates. They'd ask for a word from God. That's probably what's going on here. But it says as they were gathering around him, Ezekiel was immediately pulled from the scene at his house and he was pulled into this vision from God. So verse 2. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. He put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the valley. Okay, so a lot of details to sort through here to start off. 
Um, first of all, this form appears to Ezekiel, and I believe it was actually God who came to Ezekiel here and transported him into this vision experience. And why is that? Why do I think it was God? Well, if you remember back at the earlier part of the book, Ezekiel had seen God on a throne, and Ezekiel had very little that he was able to see about God. He said that God was bright and fiery. Below his face was bright and fiery. Above his waist was bright and fiery. He said God's form looked like gleaming metal. And that's kind of the same type of form that Ezekiel is picking up on here. He's saying, you know, maybe he's thinking, oh no, not again. Because <laughs> like, how could you ever be ready for something like this, that God's going to visit you and, and, and take you on this journey? So God picks Ezekiel up by his hair and transports Ezekiel to the temple in Jerusalem. And remember that Ezekiel, um, he's not giving his prophecies from Jerusalem. He's in this town called Tel Aviv. And so God picks Ezekiel up. And I'm thinking this is not Ezekiel's physical form. It's like God picked up his, his spirit or his soul and basically just brought him to the temple to observe all the things that are going on there. And so what is going on in Jerusalem, in, in the temple itself? Well, this is a few years away from when Babylon is going to roll through and totally wipe out the town. So how are the Jewish people spending those last few years? Well, it says they are in the temple of God, worshiping idols. Ezekiel says that he sees the statue of jealousy. Now, what exactly is the statue of jealousy? Well, we're going to get some hints later of like what kind of pagan worship that we're going to see. But at this point, I, I, don't, I think it's kind of vague because it doesn't really matter. Like, why is it called a statue of jealousy? Well, because this could be any idol. It doesn't matter what God specifically that it corresponds to. They have brought an idol into God's temple, and it's being worshipped there, like right alongside the true God. The, the, and God is jealous. The true God, Yahweh, he is jealous. The Bible often says that God is a jealous God. Ezekiel 34, 14. You shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Exodus 25, this is part of the Ten Commandments. It says, you shall not bow down to them, talking about idols, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So when God tells us not to worship idols, he often points out that he's a jealous God. And that sounds kind of like a problem here, because, you know, jealousy, it's a sin. In fact, the Tenth Commandment, it tells us not to be jealous. But you have to keep in mind what it's talking about here. Um, that you got to keep this in mind. There's a good type of jealousy and a bad type of jealousy. It's bad to be jealous about things that don't belong to you. You know, if you see a nice car or a nice job or a nice house or a nice spouse, you see something nice that someone else has and you want that for yourself and, and you daydream about it and you get mad about it, you get mad that you don't have it, you get jealous, that's obviously the bad kind of jealousy. We call that covetousness. That's not being content with what God has already given you. And it's, it's bad for your heart and bad for your soul. It's not a good jealousy. But when it comes to the things that do belong to you, there is a righteous jealousy that you can have. If your wife starts, say, getting interested in other men, well, it's actually a righteous jealousy for a husband to be upset about that. And, and the same if it was the other way around. A husband and wife, they are supposed to be committed to each other. They're supposed to be possessive of each other. That's part of the commitment and the exclusivity of marriage. So if a husband or a wife, if they're upset because someone is after their spouse, that is actually what we would call a godly type of jealousy. That's good. Now, it can obviously go too far. Like if the husband or wife, if they're constantly jealous, like they're constantly paranoid, 
that their spouse is cheating on them. You know, I'm not advocating for paranoia or constant suspicion. I'm just pointing out there's an acceptable form of jealousy that we could say is right and even biblical. And that's the exact same kind of jealousy that God shows us. God gets jealous whenever we love other things more than him. And he gets jealous whenever he sees his people worshiping something that's not him. And that's a pure, it's a godly, holy, righteous jealousy. God's not being an abusive husband when he points this out. He's Whenever he gets mad about it, he's not infringing on our freedom. Because if we are the church, we're supposed to be the bride of Christ. And so if we drift toward paganism or idolatry, or even just the more maybe like mild or more subtle forms of idolatry, like whenever we put other things above God, whenever we have idols of the heart, we're provoking God to jealousy. And it's right for him to be upset about it. In ancient Israel, God calls himself the husband of Israel. Um, the book of Jeremiah, it's sometimes referred to as God's 52-chapter certificate of divorce against Israel because they had cheated on him so many times with other gods. And Jeremiah kind of brings that message of like how idolatry is adultery. It's cheating on God. You know, Ezekiel brings that idea out a lot too later on in the book. So Ezekiel was basically written at, at the same time as Jeremiah. Israel had been dipping into the worship of false gods, not, not just dipping into it. They had brought it into God's own temple. And that's what this chapter is showing us. We'll see that this makes God very ang angry, very, very jealous. And, and God has a very righteous, holy anger about it. And I'm glad he does, because the jealousy of God, it also demonstrates the love of God. If God didn't love us, he wouldn't care what we do. But it's because he loves us so much that he actually cares what we love, what we worship, what we do with our time. And so I'm thankful for the jealousy of God. And so we aren't even told here what Ezekiel sees first in the temple that makes God so angry. It's just called the image of jealousy. And let's read a little bit more about it, and then we're going to discuss it some more. So verses 5 and 6. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary? But you will see still greater abominations. God points out pagan worship right there in God's house. And so as we read these verses today about the pagan worship in God's temple, uh, you know, it might be kind of difficult to look at that and like translate it into modern times. Like what would this mean for us? So I want you to just imagine for a second that you walked into your own home church. Okay, I hope you have a home church, a church where God is worshiped and magnified. And just imagine for a minute that, like, say you had left town for a few years, and then every, when you returned, you came back, and, and you went back to your old church, the church you grew up in. Only you notice as you walk in that things had gotten way off base at this church. Like, the building hasn't been maintained. It's kind of dark and unkept. And as you enter the foyer, you notice imagery, pictures to false religions adorning the walls, perhaps like a Buddha statue, a Muslim crescent moon over on one of the walls and, and you walk into the sanctuary and right there alongside the cross is a tau symbol or, or a pentagram now just imagine how that would make you feel like i'm getting a little sick to my stomach just like imagining this happening at my church 
just the thought of this makes my skin crawl. And a pentagram that's pretty severe. So it's probably hard to even imagine that happening at your church. But there's more subtle forms of idolatry that could creep in without us even realizing it. We'll talk about that as we go on. But that sick feeling in your stomach, just as you imagine, if you just imagine that in your own church, I just I want you to retain that feeling so you can kind of understand how Ezekiel feels as he enters God's temple. He's entering it spiritually, but he's seeing the things that are going on there in Jerusalem while his body is hundreds of miles away, while he's been living in Tel Aviv. This is what's been going on back at Jerusalem. And God makes the comment that the idolatry is driving him away. God is is repelled by this, and he doesn't want to dwell in a place where idols are being altered, uh, honored. You can't have God and idols in the same place. You have to pick one or the other. And God calls what's going on here abominations. He says, he says this, you'll see greater still abominations. It's going to get worse. That's a phrase I see used a lot on places like Twitter. You know, people are talking about inflation or gas prices, and they'll say it's going to get worse. And I try to be an optimist, but sometimes also we got to just be a realist. And, and, and that's what God's telling Ezekiel here as they're going to go on this tour of the temple. What you've seen so far is only the beginning, but it's going to get worse. So verses 7 through 10, they say this. And he brought me to the entrance of the court. And when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. So I went in and saw, and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping thing and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. I always found this part kind of interesting, like Ezekiel and God, they're there in a spiritual form. They're like ghosts. They're like flies on the wall. And they're just touring the temple and looking at all the things there. And yet somehow Ezekiel's also able to like tunnel through a wall. And it says he digs through and he sees the things that are happening secretly in the temple. So he digs through into another room and he sees all kinds of idols engraved into the walls, like secretly. And they were idols of of creeping things is what he said. I get a really demonic type of vibe right here. Like there's just all these gross creatures engraved on the walls. Like when I read creeping things, I think of creepy things. (laughs) And maybe that's the idea we're supposed to get from it. So this part of what's going on here in the temple is something that's going on in a secret room. It's hidden away. And in this room, there's like gross animals, creepy animals that represent false gods and they're engraved on the walls. They're being worshipped in there, as we'll see. Verse 11. And before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel, with Jazaniah the son of Shaphan standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He also said to me, you will see still greater abominations that they commit. So there were 70 men in this hidden room, and they were worshiping these false gods, these disgusting gods, gods represented by creeping things, or creepy things, how I like to say it. And so Ezekiel says that he sees 70 men standing around and worshiping these false gods, and this is right in the true God's house, blatant idolatry. 
again, just imagine how you'd feel if like you went to the basement of your church and you saw 70 people down there worshiping false gods. It would make you sick. Like if you love your church, it would make you enraged to see something like this going on. Now, why 70? Well, I think that's a deliberately chosen number right here. All the way back in Exodus, Moses had selected 70 men to be the leaders and representatives of the house of Israel. And as they traveled through the wilderness for 40 years, they needed some form of government. Like there were so many Israelites to keep track of. And and God or I mean, and Moses, he set up different levels of government during their temporary desert wanderings. Kind of like how we have senators and representatives and governors, you know, representing all the different levels of government in America. Well, for ancient Israel, while they were going through the wilderness, Moses was at the highest level, uh, along with Aaron and Miriam. But the next level down, they had these 70 people, and they were kind of like, we might say, a senate of Israel. They were a, a small group of the leaders of Israel, and they were called the elders. So for there to be 70 men that were set here to be worshiping these false gods in the temple, and by the way, they're called the elders of the house of Israel here, I believe that's referring to the leadership of the country. The leaders of Israel have become so wicked that they're all, all of them, all 70, they are worshiping idols in God's own house. So it's no wonder that God is mad enough to wipe out the whole town now. And um, and by the way, you know, whenever I read the book of Ezekiel, I don't just read it and marvel at how mad God gets. I read it and I marvel at how patient God is. Like, really, God is so patient. Because if I were God, I would have wiped these people out a long time ago. So you should be glad I'm not God because God is so much more merciful and loving than I am. Uh, I read this stuff. And I'm not like I don't read the book of Ezekiel and how God's going to wipe out every person in Jerusalem or 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 kill kill two thirds of them and all this terrible stuff that's going to happen. I don't read this and just think, oh man, God is so harsh. Now I read it and I'm like, God is so patient. He's way more merciful than I am. Like he waits until all 70, 70 out of seventy of the leaders of Israel are corrupt. And the king, of course, was corrupt too. And it mentions another specific name here. It says Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan. Which, of course, to us, that name doesn't really mean anything. But to the people who were reading this, to Ezekiel, this is what they would have been saying. They would have said, a son of Shaphan was worshiping idols? Like, that would have been a massive blow. The house of Shaphan was supposed to be one of the most loyal families to God. In the days of Josiah, which you, well, you can read about that in 2 Kings 22 and 23, King Josiah, he was one of those rare good kings in Israel. He led a revival. He tore down the idols in the high places. He reinstituted the following of the law in Israel because it had been neglected for years. And one of his chief helpers in doing all this, it was his state secretary who was named Shaphan. And later on in the book of Jeremiah, Shaphan's descendants, they are mentioned as being godly men uh, in three different places. Jeremiah 26, 24, 29, 3, 36, 10 through 12. They were helping Jeremiah. So the house of Shaphan, apparently they had followed God for decades. They were a solid family in Israel. And then here, as Ezekiel visits the temple, he sees a descendant of Shaphan. His name is Jazaniah. And he's worshiping false gods in a secret room. And why did they think that they could get away with this? I mean, God sees all, right? Doesn't God see everything? 
Like, why would you think that you could worship false gods anywhere? Why would you have the audacity to think that you that you could get away with it in God's own house? Well, if you if you listen, the seventy elders, they gave their rational rationalization for this. This is what they said. They said, "The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land." So they say, "Oh, God doesn't see what's going on. God's ignoring us." So we're just going to ignore him. We're going to do what we want. I mean, it's so stupid. It's beyond dumb, you know, to think that God doesn't know or care what they're doing. Like one of the first things that you learn about as a kid, you learn that God knows everything, right? If you think that God doesn't know everything, what what do you even think God is? You know, he's not one of those pagan false gods, like, like an old-time Egyptian god, that you need to go tell him what's going on, that you need to wake him up in the morning, that you need to remind him of the details. Um, God doesn't have a bad memory. He doesn't take vacations. He doesn't even take a nap. So anytime someone thinks that God can't see them, that's a self-deception because God sees it all. And of course, that's going to include what's going on in his own house. So for these elders to actually be in there and worshiping false gods, they are massively, massively deceived. And by the way, you know, just to be honest, we can do this sometimes too. Like if we think that God isn't paying attention um, to what we do in our private time, to what we do behind closed doors, to what we do in the basement in the dark, well, that'd be self-deception because God sees it all. So what th- what things do we turn to whenever we think that God isn't looking? Th- those are our idols. Now, why would the Israelites do this? Well, they're probably afraid. Babylon's armies grow stronger. They know that Jerusalem could probably fall at any time. And they think that God's not listening to them anymore. So they're turning to other gods for help. But the problem is they've actually got it backwards. God was listening until they turned to the false gods. And now he's not going to listen. They say that God turned on them. But no, they turned on God first. And now there's idol worship going on in the basement of the temple. And God says, but that's not all, Ezekiel. It's going to get worse. Well, as I look at everything I want to talk about today, uh, I'm just not going to have time to cover this whole chapter today. You know, if I did, if I tried to shove it all into this one episode, I think I would be shortchanging you because the content of verses 14 through 18 It is so juicy that I think I'm just going to save that for its own lesson. So we'll be back in two weeks and we'll finish up Ezekiel 8. Uh, And honestly, the most interesting stuff in this chapter, I would say it's still yet to come. Like we're going to talk about a particular false god in the next lesson and the relevance that it has to modern times, even modern times, even creeping into the church today. It's more relevant than you can imagine. So we'll talk about that in two weeks. Um, Let's go ahead and close down the episode for today. Let me give you a quick recap, some personal application of this chapter. First, let me just ask, do you like fake news? Okay, if not, then you definitely don't want to check out my other podcast. It's called Fake News, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast. And on that weekly show, we look at the past week of fake news. They're kind of a meta-narrative of how the media covered those stories. And it's a lot of fun. It's more focused on current events. So... If you don't like fake news, you definitely don't want to come listen to it. But if you like laughing at fake news, come join the fun with new episodes of that one each Friday. 
And then if you have a question on this chapter, just leave a comment or shoot us an email. It's crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. And I would be happy to take questions or recommendations on subjects that you think I should tackle in the future. So next time on this podcast, we're going to go ahead and learn about the second horseman of the apocalypse from Revelation 6. And that's kind of a mini-series mini that we started on recently on the four horsemen. And so we won't be back in Ezekiel next time. We're going to be in Revelation again. And that's why I say we'll come back in two weeks to hear the rest of chapter 8. And that's going to be, I think, episode 29, if I got that right. So, so before we go, let's talk about some modern applications of this idea of what we've been talking about in the chapter here. That God, God picked Ezekiel up where he was in Tel Aviv and just like spiritually took, uh, you know, his soul or his spirit, transported Ezekiel over to the temple in Jerusalem. So the people, he goes on a little tour of the temple and the people can't see him. So just think of Ezekiel almost like a ghost walking through the temple and just like, you know, just kind of like going, like a ghost going through the walls and seeing what everyone's up to in the temple. And he sees that there's all this idol worship going on right in God's own temple. The temple that Solomon built, the temple that they built in Israel to be a place where they could meet with God and worship God and do the sacrifices. And it's like the one place on earth, it had the Holy of Holies. It's the one place where people could go and meet with God personally. And they are defiling it with the worship of idols. And um, I had a lot of examples I wanted to go through today of like things I could Things that I can see in modern times where, where we do stuff like this with our churches. I had some video clips I wanted to share, or audio clips, I should say. Anyway, I think I'll have to save that for episode uh, 29, whenever we come back to this chapter. Um, but this is the idea. Here's the idea that we should take away from this chapter for ourselves. This is what I want us to remember. Respect God's house. Okay, ancient Israel, they had the temple. Like I said, it was that one religious center that the people attended. And because of that, a lot of them only came a few times a year. And originally, this there had been this tabernacle when Israel was in the desert. And then King Solomon, he wanted to honor God. He wanted to have a more permanent structure. So he constructed the temple. God had endorsed this idea. So for ancient Israel, this was the one place where ceremonial worship of God was centered. And that's why for the temple itself to be desecrated here with idolatry, that's what made... Israel's situation so hopeless because it's like well if the temple is now an idol center where are you going to turn to worship God now you know it's so this was a really bad thing and thankfully today it we live in the New Testament time we have churches we don't just have one temple to meet with God we have churches where we go to to worship God and we call like the location that we congregate we call it our church okay I'm talking about the individual churches not the overall what you know the capital C church of all Christians everywhere. I'm talking about the, the the buildings or the places where we go to worship God. That's our church. The New Testament kind of outlines the rules for churches, but whenever we read the Old Testament, we can see the we can see the commandments that God applied to the temple or to the tabernacle, and we find principles there for how we should worship God in our churches. So we don't just throw out the Old Testament because it has temples and tabernacles, and we don't just say, oh, that's irrelevant. We're just not going to follow that anymore. What we should do is look for the spiritual principles that are at work in the Old Testament stuff that we can then turn around and apply to our New Testament practices, such as going to church. So 
all that to say this, if you read Ezekiel 8, um, like let's say you have one of those Bibles that that has the different sections and they have headings over the sections. The heading that you probably have on this chapter, it will probably say abominations in the temple, which is what I almost called today's lesson. But I thought of something that I think we that, that can help us just to look at this chapter and pull a greater relevance from this chapter to today. I called it abominations in God's house because the temple was certainly God's house. But as I've been saying, where is God's house today? Well, a physical church building, that is a house of God. And it's completely appropriate to refer to your church as the house of God. And I'm thankful that in the New Testament time, where we are now, we can attend a house of God. You know, we can attend them all over the place. There's multiple ones in every city. Almost every country has several options. Every Christian church is a house of God. So whenever we enter a church, I think we need to enter it with some reverence, with respect, with honor, and with soberness. I think we should treat the objects in God's house with respect. I think we should be careful how we speak in God's house. So whenever you go to church, I just say, you know, some good ground rules to have. Don't, don't cause property damage. Speak to the leaders with respect. Don't try to distract people during praise and worship. Don't get up and walk around during the service. You know, use the bathroom before the before the service, before the sermon, so you don't have to get up then, unless it's an emergency. Um, but th- these are just some good kind of like rules of thumb for how to respect God's house. I've taught teenagers for many years in church, and I every once in a while I need to have this talk with them. Uh, but it, it can be a good reminder for all of us adults too, and for any pastors out there who are listening. You know, I'd say this too. Try to keep up with appearances at your church. Uh, be, not because those things should matter to you more than people. Like as far as maintenance of the building and stuff like that, obviously people come first. But we also want to demonstrate that we care about the building itself. Because listen, if someone comes to your church, say you have a visitor, and they walk in and the bathroom stink or there's stains on the floor, well, that communicates something to them. It, it communicates to them that you don't value this place very much. So why would a guest think that it's a place to be valued? Uh, If you can't clean up your own church or put it back together whenever it's falling apart, who is going to come to you when their life needs cleaned up, when their life is falling apart? You know, these things actually matter to outsiders and it communicates a message to them. So if you're listening, if you work for a church, I'd say prioritize getting that mess over there in the corner tidied up or getting that bathroom sink repaired. Or getting that repairman out here to fix up, you know, some of the problems. I say that primarily to pastors, but but also remember for all of us, for the rest of us, don't cause property damage at your church. <laughs> you know, take care of things better than how you would take care of things at your own house. Because those things belong to God. That, that's how I see it, okay? Even working at a church, even pastoring at one, my attitude is not that that this means everything at the church just belongs to me. Not at all. It belongs to God. And I just get to steward it. And so that brings me to my last point today. Don't bring anything evil into God's house. And I don't think we have a problem with literal idols today. Um, I mean, actually, we kind of do in some churches. I talked about that back in episode 24. But, But generally speaking, we know not to worship idols. Like, we don't even get tempted to worship idols. Because we know they're just a chunk of stone or wood or whatever they're made of. So 
I don't expect to go into the church basement of any churches in any town and find 24 deacons worshiping Satan down in the basement. Okay? I don't expect that. But could we just be careful about what kind of things that we bring into God's house? Um, in the city where I live right now, we have a church on every street. And there's good churches and bad churches. There's Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant churches, conservative and liberal churches. And I mean, I'm not too high on the liberal churches, as you can imagine, if you listen to me for very long. Okay, so we have churches all over the place, good and bad. And we have one mosque that I know of in this town, one mosque in town. I'm not aware of any others, but there's this one mosque in town. And about a decade ago, there was some wacko guy who actually tried to light it on fire and burn it down. I'm pretty sure this was back in 2012. And he didn't just try it. I mean, he actually did burn it down. Like, he he tried to one day, one day, and then it didn't work. And then, like, a month later, he tried again and actually burned it down. And they caught the guy. Um, but anyway, so he burned down the one mosque that we had in town. And I hope it's clear I'm not in favor of that. Even though I do believe Islam is false, okay, I don't hate Muslims, but I disagree with their religion. Um, I don't believe in Islam whatsoever. I think it has demonic origins. I think it's oppressive. I think it's wrong. Okay, so I'm not in favor of Islam at all. But obviously, I hope this is obvious, that doesn't mean that we should go and light mosques on fire. Okay, that's, that's wrong too. So I don't endorse this guy's actions. All right, and the community here, they collectively condemned this action and, and he was caught and he went to prison and rightfully so and the mosque was quick, quickly rebuilt okay so before long things went back to normal everybody i know condemned the actions of this guy however some churches went a little overboard in response to this and some of these they were the liberal churches they actually invited the muslims to hold their islamic services in their own church not inviting them in to like witness to them and try to get them saved. These churches were holding Muslim gatherings and, and what they called interfaith ecumenical services. And they, were, and they were saying, we all worship the same God anyway, so we can all get together and worship God together. There was an Episcopalian church in town, and they hosted a Ramadan meal. And those churches did all this. They, did all, they, you know, they said, well, we're doing this because this is how we love our neighbor. So they did all this under the guise of loving your neighbor. So again, what that guy I was talking about before, what he did to that mosque, that was wrong. You shouldn't burn down other people's property. It was wrong. But also, I'd say this to the churches, you don't respond to evil with more evil. You don't bring false religion into God's house and worship a false religion there. And, and whenever you have a church like that, a church that's willing to endorse Islam, um, it's hard to even call that church God's house in the first place. Like, if they're going to do that, I wish they would just drop the name church if that's what they want to do. Because a church is supposed to be a house of God. Not a house of gods. A house of one God. So, I just remind everybody. Be careful what you bring into God's house. I heard from a pastor recently, and he was doing like, he was hosting a funeral because someone from his congregation had passed away. And the daughter of this woman, she didn't attend their church, but the daughter of this woman who had passed away. So she visited with the pastor, and she asked if she could read a poem at the funeral. And the poem was to Mother Earth. She said that her mom just really cared about recycling 
and helping animals and stuff like that. So she wanted to honor her mother's memory with a poem to Mother Earth. Now, I know whenever you're a pastor, you know, you want to be flexible for the families who are dealing with grief and loss. So, you know, I know you want to tell them yes on something like this, but he had to tell this woman no, that they didn't do that at their church, that their church was a house of God. And and as he knows, as a lot of us know, if you compromise in one place, that tends to lead to compromising in other areas. And it gets worse. When you compromise, it might have a short-term relief, but it almost always leads to something worse down the road. So be wise whenever you have to face those decisions. Take care of your church. Thanks for listening to the Cross References podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you that Ezekiel 8 isn't done yet. The abominations in the temple aren't done yet. It's going to get worse.